The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is Lynn Sher, whose book, Swim, Why We Love the Water, has just been published by Public Affairs. Lynn, thanks so much for coming into the Slate studio, which I'm sure is a good deal less impressive than some of the many studios that oh, you've Oh, no, 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 June. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. And I like all studios. I Listen, I, when I was on the road with ABC News, when I was traveling so much, I did a lot of recordings, tracks in closets with a <laughs> lip mic. And for our listeners' information, it's this dumb little thing that you literally hold right up to your mouth because there's so it, it cuts out all the ambient yeah, noise. Wow. Oh, I've and I've recorded in the back seats of cars and vans. This is um, luxury, as far wow. as I'm concerned. That's a, a huge compliment to Slate and to <laughs> the afterwards. So thank you so much. As I was just telling you, I'm one of those people for whom your subtitle "Why We Love the Water" isn't true. I don't like pools or coves or any other bodies of water, but I really enjoyed Swim because I think it's one of those iceberg books where you can tell that the author has done a ton of research and is full of passion. But they're just showing the juiciest 1%. So it's all good. There's no filler in here. As we know, birds got to fly, fish got to swim. But is the human body (laughs) particularly suited to swimming? Uh, Not physiologically, but psychologically, we do appear to be. You appear to be a bit of an anomaly in all this, June, (laughs) because most people are totally attracted to the water and want to get into it. Children, uh, little children love the water for the most part Mm -hmm. and really want to get in. And the truth is, if you put an infant or um, even a toddler in the water, they will start to flail around and move their arms and legs in a kind of swimming activity. I did speak to a paleontologist. I spoke to um, a wonderful uh, fellow from the University of Chicago, uh, Dr. Neil Shubin. He's the one that found the fossil fish, which really is the transition moment, the wow. smoking gun. This is the fish with legs as it started to come out of the water and become a land creature. Yeah. And I said to him, okay, you know, you're the guy. And he said, yes, indeed, we have evidence of fish in our bodies and our skeletal makeups. And there are all sorts of things, but no, Lynn, he said to me, it does not mean that we are born to swim. We are born to be terrestrial creatures, but we just love, most of us, the feeling of water, the beauty of water, and the sensation of being in water. Well, now, you are a lifelong swimmer. You, you describe in the book, your great, it really comes across your great love of swimming and being in the water. But one of the great stories that you tell throughout the book is of this amazing challenge swim that you did, the the Hell's Pond across the Dardanelles. It's a, a, a swim from kind of history, from myth. It's the swim that Leander made over to hero. So wh- wh- how did you come to <laughs> Why in that? the world did Why? I do it is oh, what you're asking? Yes, exactly. Well, when I, when I decided to write the book, I decided I needed a personal challenge. Mm-hmm. I am a journalist who likes to 
understand exactly what I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was very frustrated when I covered the space program for ABC. I wanted to fly. <laughs> and uh, I was actually one of the people that was instrumental in getting NASA to start a journalist in space competition. And I was one of the 40 semifinalists. Wow. And then sometime after the Challenger explosion, it was disbanded. Yeah. I was convinced I would have been chosen and I was prepared to go. But I, I wasn't and I didn't. So I cannot fly. And of course, I might have had I gone in space. So swimming is kind of the closest thing uh, to that. But in any event, I need to participate. I need to know what it's like. So I signed up to do this race, and it is a race. It's an international Mm -hmm. race on August 30th of every year. And um, there were 430-some people. I chose the Hellespont very carefully. It appeared to be a distance I could handle. Point to point, it's only a mile. But in fact, you wind up swimming around four miles because the current is so strong. The water is quite warm there. If uh, listeners can just imagine, if you don't have a map in front of you, you've got Istanbul and the Bosphorus up north. And the Bosphorus, of course, separates Europe from Asia and that part of Turkey. And then that waterway comes down, it widens out, it becomes the Sea of Marmara. And then it gets skinny again. And that's the Dardanelles or the Hellespont, and then it empties into the Aegean. So it's the last part of Turkish water before it becomes the Aegean. Yeah. I loved the history. I was a Greek major in college. <laughs> At Troy is right there, right next yeah. to where we swam. Uh, it's also, of course, for um, another set of cultural icons. It's where the Battle of Gallipoli was right. in World War One. that truly horrible battle where so many brave men died and, and a very bloody battle. Mm. And... Of course, it is where, as you mentioned, the myth, the ancient Greek myth of Hero and Leander. Leander was the guy. Hero was the girl. It was a Romeo and Juliet story. Uh, forbidden love. And he swam across every night until he uh, drowned one right. night when there was a storm. And then she drowned, jumped in after him. And then Lord Byron, the English romantic poet, came along in 1810 and he said, hmm, I wonder if this could be done. And in fact, he did it. The first person we know of, to, to a human that we know of to have done it. And so swimming the Hellespont has always been kind of this iconic challenge. Yeah. And I thought can I do that? I was a lazy lap swimmer. And I swam in pools. I swam occasionally in the ocean. And so I joined U.S. Masters to do drills. Mm-hmm. I, I really worked at it. And I did it. Well, you also won a medal. I did win a medal. I won my age group. And I'm very proud to say that. And there is a photograph of me in the book with my medal. And because I'm a journalist, I must confess, I was the only one in my age group. You still won the medal. That's all I can see. <laughs> and I guess the, the appeal of something like that is that unlike, say, the channel, which also obviously is a, a greater distance and a much bigger well, channel. 21 miles, yeah. very, very strong currents and very cold, cold water yeah. and not, not at all something that I believe I could ever do. And also it's a very singular thing. This, there's more of a kind of a communal experience of the Hellespont, right? Bunch of you. Indeed. There were 430-some swimmers from all over the world. There yeah. were some Americans. There were a lot of Brits. There were Aussies. There were New yeah. Zealanders. There were Russians, Germans, people from all over and a lot of Turks as well. What's interesting that now that you bring that up, June, is that swimming has always been a very solitary sport, mm-hmm. certainly for me, an activity. I yeah. like the silence in the water. I I come up with some of my best leads when I'm doing laps. Right. I solve problems when I'm in the water. 
swimming is becoming a more communal, a more social event. And this race was one example of that. So we were all there, we, the racers, almost none of whom knew each other ahead of time. We were there for three days and we got to know each other. And it was quite exciting to not only to be with people and scare our terror ahead of time, but to go in the water together and then afterwards to exult together. It was quite an exciting and exhilarating event. That's wonderful. Well, as you said, swimming is a sort of on your own activity. You know, it's one of the few places left on earth where you can't talk on the telephone. You can't use the internet. No blackberries. Yeah. Somebody's (laughs) got to get on that. But also it is a sport where there's not a lot of equipment. You know, you don't have special rackets and footwear. These days, it seems like a lot of people take up activities so that they can buy gadgets and and equipment. Is there anything that people can buy? Is there any sporting? Yes. There's one piece of equipment you must have, I believe, for swimming, and that's goggles. It's been a great change in the activity to have goggles where you can not only see clearly underwater. I mean, I learned to swim like most people my age without goggles, and I would open my eyes underwater, but you couldn't keep them open for long, and heaven forbid you got contact lenses. That was the end of that. With goggles, not only can you keep your eyes open underwater, but you can swim longer without your eyes getting bloodshot or teary or anything. So I think goggles are great. The rest of the stuff... Of course, you have to wear bathing suits most. But I actually prefer swimming without a bathing suit. It's just much more comfortable. But I do wear bathing suits. Uh, swim caps are required in many pools. Right. Um, and I was shocked, not being a swimmer, to learn that that's not for to keep your hair dry, but it's mostly mm-hmm. just for the sake of the pool so there the hair is doesn't no, get stuck there, in the drains. There is no swim cap on the planet that will keep your hair dry. Get over it. Just know your hair is going to get wet. <laughs> no, and it's also to streamline you. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. also to streamline the body. This is why our Olympic swimmers, men and as well as women right. wear caps to, to to eliminate any possibility of any drag whatsoever, which will cut, in their case, a millisecond <laughs> off of their time. In my case, you know, perhaps 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Untrue. That is uh, an interesting point because swimming was an area where unusually in recent years, records dipped quite remarkably and noticeably because of equipment, even in this very low equipment sport. Yes. there During the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, what is now referred to as the suit era, um, the records, many, many records fell yeah. uh, within a, a period of a couple of days. And as a result of that, they took a look at the suits and they said, you know, remember what Michael Phelps and everybody wore these? That You know what they look like? To me, they look like what my grandfather used right. to wear in the winter. They look right. like long johns. Yeah. And um, so there's now new rules and we are now in what is called the textile era. <laughs> of bathing suits, of competitive elite swimming bathing suits, and they cannot be made of the kind of material that they wore in 2008, which appears to have given them added buoyancy and therefore a leg up, if you will, to breaking a record. So today, the suits are made of woven material. They must be woven. There are lengths that are specified. They can't be longer than a certain amount. So Uh you'll see the guys, it's not even down to their knees and the women. So it's, they've changed the rules. And I think we will see a fabulous Olympics uh, in August, but I don't think we may see as many records broken. I was going to say that given how popular swimming is at the Olympics, it's absolutely one of the keystone events. Um, It's odd, isn't it, that it then doesn't get much attention for the other three years and 50 weeks? Well, there's always a bump. Right after the Olympics, there's always a bump in the number of people signing up for swimming lessons, Uh, wanting to build pools, wanting to get their kids involved in age group competitions. And then you're quite right, it does go away. And I think that's too bad. Swimming used to be 
a favorite activity in this country back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, mm-hmm. 50s. We paid money and went to movies to watch swimming right. with Esther Williams, Johnny Weissmuller, very, very serious athletes who became movie stars, not gorgeous people who then learned how to mm-hmm. swim. Mm-hmm. There's been, it seems, this movement toward swimming being an exercise that you do laps. It's not really so much of a fun activity. It's absolutely true. A lot of public pools have been repurposed with lanes and lane lines so that all you do is get to do your laps. And the truth is the way you learn about how to survive in the water largely is getting a feel for the water. And it's when kids are playing in the water, splashing around, that they understand what keeps them afloat and what didn't. You were talking before uh, about how I write about the fact that swimming is an on-your-own thing. We don't have a lot of equipment. And, and And I say in the book that when you have an equipment malfunction in swimming, it means your body is broken down, right? It's not your paddle. It's not your boat or whatever. So when you're in the water just fooling around, you get to understand the parameters of your body and what you can do. And it's very valuable. And I wish more kids were just allowed to splash around and, and have a good time right. in in a body of water that wasn't a confined little space. Yeah. Let's start a campaign. Um, <laughs> you discuss some of the health benefits of swimming. You even say regular, vigorous water activity may indeed extend human life. Now, isn't that just propaganda from big swimming? No. (laughs) No, no, no. When you swim your laps, you may indeed be swimming in a chlorine-filled fountain of youth. The truth is, it's not going to take you back to your childhood, except perhaps in your mind. But it is wonderful, proven benefits. Uh, Read like a wish list from the American Heart Association. Pulmonary, cardiovascular, almost every single muscle, major muscle group in the body is used. It's really good for you. Again, we're talking about swimmers like you and me. The elite swimmers absolutely pull muscles, experience great pain. But if you're just a a regular committed swimmer, even if you do it just on your own, but especially if you work out, whether you're doing serious laps or doing water exercise, all these aqua sizes, exercises, whatever they do in pools, it's wonderful for you. When you're in the water, you feel ageless and weightless. Hmm. In fact, you are weightless. It's just extraordinary. I also think it has extraordinary psychological benefits. Mm -hmm. It's the best full body massage you can get, and it's the cheapest antidepressant you can buy. It is almost impossible for me not to come out of the water feeling better than when I went in. (laughs) I have never had a bad swim. And I interviewed someone who said, you can always tell the swimmers when you walk by the rec center or the Y because the swimmers are the ones walking out with a smile on their face (laughs) and the runners look pained. Let's pause for a moment to give away some books. But first of all, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily Audio Digest versions of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. The book we're discussing today, Lynn Scher's Swim, Why We Love the Water, is available unabridged on Audible, read by Lynn herself. 
Lynn, was that a fun experience? It really was. I didn't expect it to be, but I had a great time doing it because I got to relive all these wonderful moments, all, all the right. people I interviewed, and my own swim, which which is told in yeah. full with throughout the book. Yeah. So I, I actually quite enjoyed it. That's wonderful. Well, to get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download Swim or another of the 100,000 audiobooks available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get credit. So that's audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Now, Public Affairs has very kindly given us four copies of Swim to give away to listeners. If you would like one, send an email with the words Swim Giveaway in the subject line to slateafterword at gmail.com by 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, May 4th, 2012, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterword at gmail.com. Now, as you mentioned earlier, Leander perished while making the crossing and water can be dangerous. Water can indeed be dangerous. There are many, many perils in the open water, certainly, mm. as well as in a pool. First of all, you can drown in three inches of water, yeah. you know. You could drown in your bathtub. Yeah. We've seen far too many tragic situations like that. Rule number one is be careful. In terms of actual swimming, I think the, the thing to remember is learn how to swim. Yeah. I wish that it were mandatory in our grammar schools the way it is, for example, in the Netherlands, mm. which is a country laced with canals, and that you have to be able to swim before you get out of grammar school. Mm. I think in this country, even in desert areas, children ought to have to learn how to swim. It's mm. not only uh, something that will save you from drowning, but I think it's a life skill. It gives you a certain confidence and an understanding that you can accomplish things even on land that you might not otherwise – other things in the water, my goodness, there's um, all sorts of critters in there yeah. that don't want us invading their turf. What that means is be careful. Yeah. Know what you're doing. Never swim alone. Always swim with a buddy. Mm. And be cognizant of what's around you. Well, that reminds me of one of the very, very interesting themes that comes up a couple of times in your book is what you might call the swimming gap between blacks and whites mm. in the U.S. Um, you talk about how during the Jim Crow era, blacks were excluded from safe beaches and pools and a rich swimming tradition was lost. As you say, more than 4,000 people drowned in the U.S. in 2008 and as many as 60% of minority children compared with 40% of white children can't swim. What can we do to address these issues? There are a number of programs that are trying to address it. The uh, USA Swimming Foundation is sponsoring a program called Make a Splash. And Cullen Jones, the African-American leg of that wonderful swim relay that got a gold in right. Beijing in uh, 2008, Cullen has been going around the country speaking to youngsters. And uh, the day that I saw him uh, here in New York City, he said to a bunch of kids who didn't, you know, they didn't quite know what, why he's there and what he was doing. He said, swimming can really change your life. He said, see my shoes? And he had these really cool shoes. And he said, I got them for free because I'm a <laughs> swimmer and the kids suddenly were listening. So far as I was concerned, whatever works, right? right? There are a number of programs. There need to be more. We need to get our kids in the water. And I, I will also tell you, I just um, spoke with a woman who runs a foundation and they deal with minority children and try to get them over the summers prepped to go back to school. Mm -hmm. And they do a camp kind of thing. And they, they not only teach them tutor them in, in academic subjects, they also teach them how to swim. Mm. And this woman says, 
that the confidence it gives these kids who have never been near a pool, have never had access to a pool, the confidence it gives them when they learn how to swim on land is amazing. She said it's a real transition. So the benefits are a given. We just have to get on it. In your workplace, you might entertain a client or bond with your boss over a round of golf or a game of tennis. Swimming is not not so much. Not so much. I think we're a long way from the boss uh, getting a group of people together and saying, come on, let's go swimming. Let's go swim some laps. Uh, For one thing, you have to bear your body in a way that might be a little troubling to some people. And again, you can't make a deal while you're swimming a lap. You can do that while you're putting in the last hole. So... I think we're a ways from that. But I will say that one of the things that is driving swimming today is triathlons. There are a number of people who have the running and have the cycling part of it, and they want that third leg, and they Mm -hmm. don't know how to swim well. These are obviously very gifted athletes or trained athletes, but they don't know the swimming, and a lot of them are now taking swimming lessons. Finally, one of the things you mentioned in the book is that elite swimmers spend eight hours a day at least six days a week in the pool, but at least the ones you spoke with still seemed to love it. After writing this book and training for the Hellespont Swim, are you still as fond of the water as you were before you dived into this project? You see what I did there too, dived in. Uh, it, it's a it's an <laughs> occupational hazard. Nobody can resist and making a splash. Uh, the answer is yes, June. I am still as enthusiastic. Now, because I've been um, uh, running around the country publicizing it for the last couple of weeks, I haven't had a lot of swim oh my time, goodness. but I'll get back. Actually, I'm going to swim a guy. I swim at six in the morning in New York City a couple times a week, and I will do it tomorrow because I don't have to be anywhere or on television or in front of a (laughs) microphone early. So I'll do it tomorrow. And the weather is also getting nicer. And I will confess that I prefer swimming even indoors when the weather is warmer outdoors. And once the weather gets really warm, and I sort of will go out to a place that I have where it's near water, I'll swim almost every day. It pleases me. It just pleases me. And, you know, the Hell's Pond Swim was a physical and a mental challenge that I put out there. And I'd never done anything like that before. And the fact that I did it, I have such a sense of of accomplishment. And uh, it's funny. We had gorgeous weather the day of it. And the day before, the the water was horrible and we were all panicked. (laughs) Day of the the swim, the water was beautiful. The air was beautiful. And I came out and one of my new friends said to me, wasn't that fabulous? Yes, it wasn't (laughs) a fabulous. And he said, are you going to do it again? I said, are you nuts? It was perfect weather, perfect (laughs) water. And I did it. I'm not doing this one again, but I might find another one. So I'm looking around for another challenge that I think I can handle. Well, you're a fantastic advert for swimming. You have got me thinking maybe I should think about going near a pool and at least improving my skills. Stick a toe in, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for that. Lynn, thanks once again for spending this time on dry land with us. That was Lynn Sher, whose new book, Swim, Why We Love the Water, is available in bookstores now. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterword at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.